You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. So, Andrea, um, I thought that today a good way to break the ice uh, before we dive into part two of debunking vaccine myths was to talk about some of our biggest pet peeves. Um, Andrea, I'm, I'm chuckling, of course, because, um, you know, there are different ways of uh, uh, saying pet peeves. You know, I like to say grinds my gears. You like to say chaps my ass. <laughs> so I'm going to kick things off with um, something that really grinds my gears and then I'll turn it over to you. Um, so I have two things that I'll say. One is maybe a little sillier and one is more serious. The, the silly one is, have you ever heard of misophonia? Do you know what that is? Mm, I, I don't know. No. So I I'm, I think it might be a made up word. Um, and really, I should have Googled it before I <laughs> said it. But, <laughs> but basically, a peppy of my, I hate hearing people chew, eat, drink, slurp. It drives me insane. I go into this irrational rage. I cannot be around people. When I'm on the phone with someone and they take a gulp of water, it drives me crazy. Goosebumps. I, I don't know. Oh, I don't know I if you know have that. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> the loud Do chewing you? or like the chomping, oh, is, oh it drives God. me nuts too. <laughs> crazy. Um, my second pet peeve is this idea that everything is opinion based and that, you know, it's okay that we're putting things out on social media. You know, I can have an opinion on everything and, you know, it's all about different perspectives. That might be true for, for some things, but there are things in this world that are irrefutable. Um, and obviously you and I are unbiased scientists. And I know that this really <laughs> hits home for us. You know, uh, what we were talking about last week, what we'll talk about this week. I have, let's use vaccines as an example. Mm. I've had people tell me, you know, oh no, I have a friend. I know, I know that vaccines caused autism, you know, in their child. Mm. No, <laughs> that, that, that's not true. There's zero evidence of that. And this is not an opinion based matter. So I have to throw that out there as my biggest pet peeve. What about you? I mean, I, I agree with both of those, to be honest. But if I had to add to the list, I'll do a silly one. So um, <laughs> <laughs> something that drives me nuts is when I'm trying to fall asleep and I'm wearing pajama pants and the the seam of the pants is like rotated. So it's like rubbing on my leg and I just yes. like fixate and like try and readjust it for like 20 minutes. Cause I can't get comfortable. Um, mm -hmm. it, it drives me absolutely insane. It's so silly, but it really, it really interrupts my sleep. 
I get it, and I'm the same. What's um, your? Did you have a serious sure. one? Sure, my serious one. There's a lot of them, but I'll try and keep it toned down. Um, I think I think kind of along the same vein of yours is really, um, you know, we're seeing this kind of death of expertise where, um, you know, people with legitimate credentials and actually have, um, you know. A, a legitimate reason to be speaking out about a certain topic, and that could be public health or science or whatever the case happens to be, um, they're often discredited by people who want to think that they know more. So they read a Google article or they read a couple of papers, and then therefore they're they're along the same lines or at the same level of expertise as a legitimate expert. Um, we've seen that with all sorts of topics this year, certainly in science and public health, but also with regard to, you know, things about elections and things about politics and things about the economy. Um, And there's a reason that people train their entire careers to become an expert in a given field. And it's not so that other people can try and supersede that. Preach, preach, preach. (laughs) You know that I'm on the same page, Andrea. (laughs) So relevant to what we're saying here, um, I I think this is all really relevant to our conversation, to last week's episode and to this week's episode. Um, Just to recap what we we spoke about last week, we we started debunking the first set of myths um, on vaccines. So we talked about... um, you know, people claim that vaccines cause autism. Again, you know, zero evidence of that, that vaccines cause the disease they claim to prevent, that vaccines cause, uh, contain fetal tissue, and that vaccines are riddled with toxins and harmful substances. So we debunked all of those things, presented science and, and, and clarified some, some misconceptions. Um, Andrew, did you want to refresh our memory, you know, why we're so focused on this and why we feel feel so passionately? Yeah, absolutely, Jess. So, um, of course, you know, we have several COVID-19 vaccine candidates that are starting to roll out in the UK. Um, you know, the, the week of, I don't even know what the date is today, the week of November 1st or November 30th, sorry. Um, they got approval um, on the UK. Essentially, their their correlate to the FDA approved the Pfizer BioNTech uh, COVID nineteen mRNA vaccine. So that's already rolling out in the UK. We expect um, Moderna and Pfizer in the US to to go through um, FDA review very shortly. Um, and so with the rollout of these vaccines on the brink, um, concerns about uptake of the vaccine are growing. So we need people to actually get the vaccine. Um, It doesn't matter if we have a vaccine, how effective it is, if people won't actually get it. Um, And the World Health Organization has named vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health. Um, And of course, there's a lot of reasons why people don't vaccinate, but we need to make sure that a lot of these common and circulating misconceptions and myths are really well debunked so that we can dispel a lot of that misinformation and ensure that people do get this vaccine um, in order to stop the ongoing pandemic. And Andrea, you know, you and I, obviously, I know you know this, we send each other these links constantly, these these clickbait headlines with super misinformed messages that are, you know, now planting seeds and pseudoscience and, and just really making people more hesitant to get the vaccine, our whole world, the whole world stopped, you know, this past year because of this once in a lifetime 
plague. And we put our best and brightest minds on the development of a vaccine. It usually takes more than a decade. And, and we've, you know, safely truncated the, the timeline to, to, to come up with this incredible preventative basically magical tool, you know, to prevent the virus that has killed almost 300,000 people. And then, you know, we're the, the next battle, and it's an uphill battle, is is going to be convincing people to get the vaccine. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. Just, we are I just wanna, doing our part. I want to yeah. just jump in there. That's 300,000 yeah. dead in just the U.S. Oh, yeah. Of Sorry, course, globally, you. that number is higher as well. But yeah, absolutely. We need to make sure that you know, people are getting that vaccine. Um, we're obviously going to talk a little about about herd immunity in this episode, but um, you know, a certain proportion of the population need to be protected in order to stamp out the outbreak. Absolutely. So, so let's dive in to our first myth. Um, okay, so we get this question all the time. So this could be our herd from the herd. Mm-hmm. Um, you know not vaccinating is a personal decision that only affects me or my child. So if everyone else is vaccinated, why does it matter if I am? And really, there are two simple facts that contribute to this answer. The first, and of course, I'd love you to weigh in as an immunologist, Andrea, is that vaccines aren't 100% effective. Nothing is, right? So even, you know, I like to give the example of seatbelts. We all know that we should be wearing seatbelts. They're great if, you know, heaven forbid we get into a car accident, but they don't save us 100% of the time, right? The same goes for vaccines. So even some people who are vaccinated will still be at risk. The second is something that you were just touching on, Andrea. The number, the greater the number of unvaccinated people in a community, the more opportunity germs have to spread. So this means that outbreaks are more difficult to stem and everyone is at a greater risk of exposure, including vaccinated people. So we have to talk about herd immunity or community immunity. Um, Thanks to this concept of herd immunity, um, as long as a large majority of people are immunized in any population, even the unimmunized minority will be protected. So with so many people resistant, an infectious disease doesn't have the chance to establish itself and spread. This is really important because there will always be a portion of the population, including infants, pregnant women, uh, the elderly, and those with weakened immune systems who are medically unable to receive vaccines. And um, some instances that come to mind are, you know, folks who have cancer, HIV or AIDS, type 1 diabetes, or other health conditions. Yeah, Jess, mm-hmm. it's a great point. Um, I think something that is important to understand is that um, the proportion of the population that are vaccinated or are protected against a certain disease um, varies depending on the disease, depending on the transmission route, and depending on that um, reproductive value that we've talked about, um, you know, quite a bit. And so, but generally, it needs to be a, a majority of the population. So if people are not getting their vaccines, or we're letting, you know, vaccines fall by the wayside, the proportion of those people that are that are immune um, is going to decline. And ultimately, that 
raises the risk of an outbreak taking root. Um, We've obviously seen that in pockets where we've seen these localized measles outbreaks, mumps outbreaks, other sorts of things like that. Um, and, And of course, maintaining this community immunity in a widespread manner is really critical. Mm-hmm. And and correct me if I'm wrong, for COVID, I think our best estimate for the threshold, um, you know, percentage of the population who need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity for, for COVID is somewhere in the range of 50 to 70 percent. Yeah. So they're estimating that, you know, ideally for community immunity for COVID-19, that's, that's going to be a, a threshold for um, kind of slowing it down. So the whole concept of herd immunity is when a pathogen interacts with somebody that's immune, it's stops the chain of transmission because that person is not going to get infected. And then ultimately any people they interact with won't get infected too. If they were not immune, they could get infected and then ultimately could spread that virus exponentially. Um, Mm -hmm. So with COVID-19, I think they're saying closer to 60 to 70% need to be immune. Now, if you assume that the vaccine is about 90% effective, which is kind of what we're seeing with the Moderna and the Pfizer, that means between 66% and 78% of the population need to be vaccinated because some of those people that are vaccinated will still be at risk. Um, And that's a, you know, really goes to the first point you made. Even the best vaccines are not 100% effective. We have really, really um, efficacious vaccines where we're, you know, 98%, but still very small proportion that that are not um, fully protected, even if they are vaccinated. Right. So, you know, this, again, underscores why this conversation is so important, why we're emphasizing, um, you know, debunking these these myths, because we need everyone to get vaccinated <laughs> um, if we actually, um, you know, want to achieve herd immunity for, for COVID-19. So, um, so again, if too many people don't vaccinate themselves or their children, uh, they contribute to a collective danger opening up opportunities for viruses and bacteria to establish themselves and spread. Um, Another thing that I wanted to mention is international travel. Mm -hmm. So if you're going out of the country, uh, we're exposed to diseases that may not be a threat in your own country. It may be common elsewhere. So if someone were to carry in a disease from from abroad, an unvaccinated individual would be at far greater risk of getting sick if he or she is exposed. Uh, That's a great point, Jess. I, I know for myself personally, when I traveled to South America, I got the yellow fever vaccine and also the hepatitis A and the typhoid vaccine. And so those are illnesses that are not very common in the U.S., um, of course, but in the areas that we were going to be in, um, you know, very prevalent and certainly want to be protected for those. Right. Definitely don't want to mess with those diseases. Um, Okay, so let's give a case study of community immunity at work. And that's a little bit of a tongue twister. But um, what comes to mind uh, is the pneumococcal vaccine. So pneumococcal disease can cause serious infections of the ears, lungs, blood, and brain. And although it's common in young children, older adults are most at risk for serious pneumococcal infections. So since the pneumococcal vaccine was approved for use in children, the number of older adults hospitalized for pneumococcal disease has gone way down. So this tells us that vaccinating infants protected older adults from the spread of serious pneumococcal infections before a vaccine for older adults was available. 
Yeah, that's a great example, Jess. Um, I think it really underscores the concept that, you know, vaccines are preventing communicable diseases, right? And when you live in a society where you interact with other people, your actions ultimately can have an effect on other people. And so we all have to work collectively by vaccinating and protecting ourselves and ultimately other people to ensure that the population at large stays healthy. Very well said. Um, Andrea, anything else to add to this myth or should we move on to our next? I think we're ready to move on. Okay. Do you want to kick it off? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the next myth is natural immunity to the disease itself is better than vaccine-induced immunity. Um, And so I think this bears a little bit of kind of setting the stage. So natural immunity, of course, when you get sick with an illness, you're body mounts that immune response. And if you recall one of our earlier episodes, we talked a little bit about both the innate and the adaptive immune response. Um, And these obviously participate in you fighting off these illnesses when you actually get sick. Um, In some diseases, you that natural immunity that your body fending off that infection may actually be somewhat stronger, a stronger immune response than Um, to your response with the vaccination against the disease in question. Um, And that's often because of the the formulation of the vaccine and, you know, in comparison to the immune response to all of the components of the virus or bacteria in question. However, the, the thing that we must consider is that the dangers of disease are going to outweigh the very small benefit of that slightly stronger immune response. So typically our vaccines are establishing very potent long-term immunity. So even if natural infection is slightly stronger, uh, it's not going to really underline or underscore susceptibility if you're getting vaccinated. You're still going to have adequate protection. Um, Jess, I think you had some stats in here that you wanted to summarize really quickly. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sure. Um, so, for example, if you wanted to gain immunity to, e- to measles uh, by contracting the disease, you would face a 1 in 500 chance of death from your symptoms. In contrast, the number of people who have had serious, severe allergic reactions from an MMR vaccine is less than 1 in 1 million. So, again, let's just recap. If you just went ahead, you did not get vaccinated, you contracted measles, you would face a one in 500 chance of death. Whereas if you got vaccinated, if you got the MMR vaccine, your chances of having a severe allergic reaction is less than one in one million. So the price paid for natural disease, you know, Andrea, as you're saying, could be very, very serious. It could include paralysis, permanent brain damage, liver failure, liver cancer, deafness, blindness, loss of limbs, and of course, death. 
So I think back to when I was in kindergarten, and I'm, I'm sure it was similar um, to, to where you grew up, Andrea, people were having chicken pox parties. Mm-hmm. Was that a thing? Oh, yeah. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. I do. Um, and I feel like, you know, people often think, oh, chicken pox, ah, you're itchy for a few days, you have a few spots, and then you're fine. Um, not true. So there are serious risks and and death of natural infection um, with chickenpox or varicella. Mm-hmm. So it could lead to pneumonia, um, complications due to shingles recurrence. Um, yeah. and so it's, it's very serious. Sorry. Um, no, I, was, I just wanted to jump <laughs> in and kind of elaborate on the chicken pox. So the varicella yeah. zoster virus, um, it's certain viral illnesses can establish what we call dormancy. And basically after you have that primary infection, that chicken pox rash, um, it just lives in your body forever in certain cells in your body. And then it can be reactivated when your immune system is compromised due to stress, due to age, et cetera. So chickenpox, I think most people know it reactivates as shingles later in life. Um, and, and the reason um, we get that kind of hemispherical rash is because it lives in these peripheral neurons in, in our body. So they live in ner- nervous system cells. Um, this can be obviously shingles can be severely debilitating, but it can also be potentially fatal if that rash erupts in your facial nerves and it can lead to things like encephalitis and meningitis, which is inflammation of the brain and central nervous system. Um, on top of that, other sorts of chronic viral illnesses like hepatitis B virus that can develop into long-term serious disease, including liver damage, liver failure, liver cancer, and even death. Um, so it's really important to consider that, you know, even some of these viruses where the primary illness is not that severe and you feel better, it can ultimately live in your body and cause potentially really ser- serious long-term effects. Right. And there are other things that also come to mind, like polio. So a natural polio infection could cause permanent paralysis. You think absolutely. about rabies, which absolutely terrifies me, has the highest fatality rate of any known disease, 99.9%. Yeah. Did you want to talk about the rabies? Yeah, sure. So or? so rabies is obviously, rabies is the most fatal disease that we've ever identified. Um, essentially, you know, it's it's functionally fatal if you get, you know, if you contract it. There's been a few instances where prophylactic vaccine administration after a person's been bitten by a rabid animal, um, you know, has has ultimately saved their lives. Um, but the vaccine is available. It is given to people who are really in high risk situations. So those would be people like veterinarians or vet students, animal handlers, people in the lab who study rabies or are working on vaccine and they work with the virus. Um, and there's other some other people, things like spelunkers. So these are cave divers where they're going to be in contact with animals that are known to carry rabies like bats. Um, And then other persons with high risk activities. So that could be people that have to travel for work or even for pleasure where um, they're going to be in countries that have high prevalence of rabies. Andrea, I'm sorry. <laughs> spelunkers. I feel like you would go spelunking. <gasps> oh no, no way. I know so claustrophobic. As much as oh. being in a cave really fascinates me, I am terrified of getting trapped. <laughs> you just th- strike me as more of a thrill seeker. I'm the anti-spelunker. <laughs> I'm the couch potato. I'll watch you all go spelunking on TV. Um, okay, so even something um that many people consider to be a mild illness like the Blue causes 226 
thousand hospitalizations per year, including twenty thousand children. Um, about thirty six thousand people die from the flu each year. Um, vaccines stimulate the immune system to produce an immune response similar to the natural infection, but they do not cause the disease or put the immunized person at risk of its potential complications. So again, if you're doing a simple risk benefit analysis here, um, you know, sign me up for the vaccine versus getting natural disease. The risks are just too high, even for things that are considered mild or common like the flu. So just quickly before we move on to the next myth, um, the CDC published something, um, you know, what would happen if we stopped vaccination? So I just wanted to quickly run through this, if that's okay. Um, They found, or they're they're saying that nearly everyone in the U.S. got measles before there was a vaccine. And hundreds died from it each and every year. Today, it's very rare to see a case of measles, except, of course, as we discussed on last week's episode, you know, the fact that we have these pockets of people who are choosing not to get vaccinated. Now we're suddenly seeing these cases of measles crop up again, which is really unfortunate because it's completely preventable if you get your vaccine. Um, Also, more than 15,000 Americans died from diphtheria in 1921 before there was a vaccine. Um, Only two cases of diphtheria have been reported to the CDC between 2004 and 2015. 2014, excuse me. Again, more evidence of, you know, the effectiveness of vaccines in preventing disease. An epidemic of rubella, which is German measles in 1964 to 65, infected 12 and a half million Americans, killed 2,000 babies and caused 11,000 miscarriages. Since 2012, only 15 cases of rubella were reported to the CDC. Again, it's crystal clear mm-hmm. that, you know, th- we're going to talk about this next week, Andrea, you know, that the, the risks of vaccines and any potential adverse ev- ev- events are so rare and so minimal mm-hmm. in comparison to the damage and devastation caused by the actual diseases. Yeah. And I think, you know, the data here also really underscores, you know, the fact that this myth that natural immunity is better than vaccine induced immunity is really false because when we've implemented these widespread vaccines, as you mentioned, there was 15 cases in the last eight years of rubella that have been reported. And that's those are, you know, that's all due to the fact that we have widespread vaccination. So clearly, vaccine-induced immunity is more than sufficient to protect populations. And, and you know, even if I think you said this earlier, it might be true that natural um, natural infection might confer longer, more long term infection. Even if protection, and sorry if I got that wrong, you can correct me in a second. But even if protection from vaccines were to wane over time, we can get a booster shot, mm-hmm. right? I'm thinking of Tdap boosters. Did I get that right, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. So you know, some some vaccines provide lifetime immunity. Um, and then some, you know, you do have a waning immunity, but that is also potentially true in the case of a natural infection. Um, and something like tetanus, you don't want to mess with. So, you know, getting a booster every decade or so or after a potential exposure is, you know, a very, very small sacrifice to make to ensure that you're going to be able to stay healthy. Very well said. All right, Andrea, I'm hoping you can kick us off in debunking our next myth, which is that vaccines aren't actually effective and it's really just better hygiene that's the cause of reduced infections. Yeah, it's, you know, this one is is tricky because there's 
there's a little bit of truth to the concept of hygiene, right? Hygiene is critically important. Um, obviously, you know, we have developing nations that have a lot more waterborne, foodborne, et cetera, um, types of illnesses. So, you know, vaccines obviously deserve a lot of credit for a variety of infectious diseases, but better sanitation, better nutrition, access to running water, um, uh, flush toilets, et cetera, as well as antibiotics. They all help. So a couple of examples here, and these are diseases that we don't have vaccines for. Um, so something like the plague. Um, so plague is caused by the bacteria Yersinia pestis. That bacteria lives inside infected fleas, and those fleas like to live on rats uh, predominantly, but other rodents too. So in, um, you know, early Europe, there was obviously a huge black black plague that was caused by this bacteria. And the predominant route of transmission was the fact that poor people in these um, cities were living essentially in empty sewage areas. So there's rats living amongst them. They're sharing their houses with rats. Those rats have fleas on them. The fleas are biting the people and ultimately transmitting that bacteria. So ultimately, improved hygiene dramatically reduces our proximity to these infected fleas that are living on other animals. Um, Of course, we do have antibiotics that can also treat plague, but again, no vaccine yet for that. Um, Cholera is another example. We do have a a toxoid-based vaccine that's not heavily used, but it exists. Um, But the big thing for cholera, this is a an infection that causes what we call water rice stool. So it's very liquid, loose bowels. um, And that flushes into water. And when you don't have appropriate water treatment, that passes that infection from person to person. So obviously sanitation, water treatment, flush toilets, better hygiene, obviously have a a significant impact on reducing the incidence of cholera. Um, Can we just all take a second to appreciate that we live in 2020 at a time (laughs) where (laughs) we have access to the, you know, clean water and flushing toilets. I mean, the things you're describing are horrific. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, certainly, certainly hygiene and all these public health measures, you know, help mitigate a lot of a lot of, you know, disease and death. But of course, if we eliminate those factors and we look at infectious disease rates separate from, um, you know, hygiene and sanitation, you really can see the effects and the role of vaccines. Oh, for sure. Even just just going back to what we said just a couple of minutes ago about the rubella epidemic, that was in the the 60s. I mean, by that time, we were aware, right? It's not like we were living in sewage and squalor at that time. And yet still, you had a, a, a an outbreak that, that infected 12 and a half million Americans. So it's not hygiene alone that can, of, of course, we know, you know, that hygiene alone cannot, um, you know, solve our infection problem. So yeah, sorry. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's a good point. And, and I think here's another nice example for a case study. So measles in the United States is a great case study because we've had an effective vaccine for quite some time. So we have a lot of data that we can track. So um, the vaccine was introduced in 1963. Before the vaccine was introduced, we were looking at about 400,000 cases of measles a year in the U.S. Um, the vaccine, again, was introduced in 1963. And we looked at the tracking of um, incidents of measles um, from that point on. And what we noticed was that 
even though hygiene practices didn't change dramatically in the 60s and 70s, um, the measles infection rate dropped precipitously. We had um, only 25,000 cases reported by 1970. Um, and of course, we continue to see a downward trend. Um, in 1998, we reported only 89 total cases of measles and zero Amazing. deaths. Now, I want to mention here, 1998 was the year that the Andrew Wakefield paper came out. Um, so of yeah. course, after that year, we did see a little bit of an uptick because people started to become uh, more anti-vaccine. Good old Andy Wakefield. <laughs> uh, oh God, he really grinds my gears. Uh, so I don't know if you, if I just cut you off, Andrea, but I, I just wanted to recap what we're saying, which is that vaccines are necessary um, and good hygiene, sanitation, clean water, and nutrition um, are insufficient alone for stopping infectious diseases, right? So if mm -hmm. we don't maintain optimal rates of immunization or herd immunity, the diseases prevented by vaccination will return. And, and we're seeing that again, you know, as vaccine hesitancy increases, we're seeing these totally preventable diseases crop up. So while better hygiene, sanitation and clean water help protect people from infectious disease, many infections can spread regardless of how clean mm, they are. That's a great point. Jess, um, especially when we're talking about things that are, you know, person to person or, you know, even vector born where we have no control of where a mosquito happens to be if it's transmitting a disease to us. Right. I mean, even look at COVID, mm -hmm. right? That's droplet transmission. It doesn't matter if I've showered a hundred times, you know, I can still transmit and, and contract COVID if I'm close to someone who is infected with COVID.